1: Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-pack and 50% off a caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale in-store and online at cabelas.com.
0: Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Kevin Pelton of ESPN Insider, one of my favorites to read and talk to. This was fun to do because it's such an exciting week of playoff basketball that is coming up from the start of the Western Conference semifinals to the Game 7s in the East. And then, of course, on Monday, Cavs, Hawks will start the semifinals in the East. Our conversation runs about an hour really did enjoy it. One thing I will note and apologize for is that the audio quality on this isn't great. Kevin was driving actually from covering the game last night, Blazers Clippers in Portland to Seattle. So there's some ambient noise, but the content is good enough and I did everything I could to mitigate it, but I think you will still enjoy the conversation and find it worthwhile. Thanks so much for coming on.
2: Well, always a pleasure to uh, join you. I was actually just listening to dump talk before we started recording.
0: Yeah, and so the timing on this is pretty fun because while we can't really do a formal second-round preview because of the timing of everything, what we're looking at this weekend is Game 1 in both Western Conference semifinals and then two big Game 7s out east.
2: Right, a a lot at stake uh, this weekend in two different rounds.
0: So we'll start with what I think is probably the top of the list for both of us, which is Spurs, Thunder, a very fascinating series and one that is impactful in, in a couple of different ways. And I guess the, the place to, uh, uh, in that series to start is, what do you think is the single most important thing about that series? Well, we did a
2: five-on-five on, five on this for Insider, so I, I already answered this earlier today. It determined that, in my opinion, it's Oklahoma City's ability to execute down the stretch. I mean, if you look at, obviously, the issue for the Thunder all season long has been their ability to win close games. Which I tend to feel is probably much more random than most people tend to feel. But in a series like this, where I think that most of the games are going to be close, the two games that the teams played when they were at full strength were both decided by single digits. You're going to have a lot of those situations, and whether the Thunder actually, you know, execute down the stretch, or you know, it, it proved that what happened in the regular season is mostly random, or whether they struggle in those situations it's probably going to determine the outcome
0: of the series. Yeah, and that also, it, it's one of the fascinating dynamics that happened during the season was early on, the Spurs were actually struggling in crunch time. They weren't doing that well, and they ended the season third in crunch, as defined by the NBA is five points or less in the last five minutes. They ended up third in the league in, in that by outscoring opponents by 15.4 during that stretch, and OKC was towards the bottom, and they were actually outscored by 8.2 points per hundred, which was worse than the Magic, who I regularly lampoon for their crunch time ineffectiveness.
2: Right. And, I, you know, they they stand out in that section of the NBA. I mean, even though that there's more randomness in the last five minutes because the sample sizes are smaller than there's other situations, like, is there an intentional foul in there where you're killing your net rating because of the fact that you're trying to preserve some small chance of winning the game? Those sort of issues crop up. But it's... It, Generally speaking, the best teams in the league are the best at time, and Oklahoma City is the notable exception to
0: that rule. Cool. And it's been kind of disheartening to see that that has continued from from Scott Brooks to Billy Donovan because some people, including myself, had kind of theorized that Brooks had maybe not had f- facilitated that, but it had at least enabled it by being okay with them going to this... ISO heavy lack of movement basketball in late game situations.
2: And we haven't really seen that change at all this year. Right. Yeah, I mean I wonder to to what extent it's just a product of your greatest strength and also your greatest weakness. So when you have two scores as good as Durant and Westbrook, you're not forced to be creative as someone who doesn't have that kind of individual shot creation might not forget with their late like
0: game offense. Of. The analogy that I would make is to the Warriors with Mark Jackson and Steve Kerr was that some people are okay with, with kind of the idea of good enough that, you know, that you can, they can be successful, they can get points with those two guys, but you can do better with a with a more cogent system. Of course, building that system is incredibly difficult and not everybody can do it. And
2: yeah, you certainly don't want to start uh, during round two of the NBA playoffs but I, I think part of it is maybe that's one of the places where the adjustment from the college game to the NBA game is bigger than we give it credit for being, given that, you know, a 30 second, 35 second shot clock when Donovan was there, obviously, it was 30 this year after he after came to the NBA. You've got time to run lots of actions, do various different things in the course of an offensive possession. In the NBA, a little more compressed. That's part of the reason we see more isolation ball, and maybe, you know, you didn't have necessarily those quick hitting things to get a, a number of people involved ready to go right away in the NBA.
0: One of the other really important things that I've seen in this series is that Russell Westbrook is a very talented driver, but his finishing is a little bit shaky. And with the expectation that both of these teams could stay big for a while, I think in some ways that could really hurt him because the Spurs have Tim Duncan, who's one of the best rim protectors in the league. Definitely, yeah.
2: I mean, he's, he's better. He's kind of more of a volume shooter at the rim. They're still efficient shots overall because of the fact that they're just so good by their nature. but. It's not that he's great because of the fact that he shoots a high percentage of the rim, like Kyrie Irving. It's because of the fact that he just gets so many of those shots that a lot of them are going to go in by definition. And I, I mean, I guess that that was one of the questions is like, in crunch time, is Tim Duncan going to be able to stay on the floor or are the Spurs going to be able to, or the Thunder rather going to be able to find ways to take advantage of pulling him out on the perimeter, doing that sort of thing, and and causing problems and trying to
0: play him off. Well, their challenge is that they don't have enough perimeter talents to really go small in those crunch time moments. They can try it, you know, If it's particularly if it's an offense-defense situation, then that opens it up a little bit. You know, you could have a guy like Anthony Morrow maybe out there who you probably wouldn't want to have out there if you're going, you know, if you're exchanging possessions without a timeout. But if they're going to have Steven Adams in there, then Tim Duncan doesn't have to. You're not sitting there worried if that you can leave Stephen Adams. Oh no, if he's open for a twenty footer, that's going to be devastating. So Duncan can hang out closer to the rim.
2: Right. It pretty much requires the pocket to be at center, which gets back to that issue about the lack of wings. And it feels like a conversation that we've been having about the Thunder dating back to last year in Summer league. Yeah. It's
0: it's a it's a big problem for them, and it's something that also came. To, to a degree in, into effect in the Clippers series, which just resolved, was just not having enough guys that can do specific things on the perimeter, it forces you into some of these complicated matchups, as opposed to somebody like the Blazers, who they had enough people that they could be a little bit more flexible.
2: Right, which, you know, it's probably getting ahead of things, but it's interesting for them in the Golden State series is that Portland, almost by accident in some way, ended up with or two-way, at least competent, if not plus two-way win players than almost anyone in the league
0: today. Yeah, and you, when you consider that Oklahoma City had been trying for that as one of their core flaws for the last three years, basically ever since they traded James Harden, it's amazing that Portland basically discovered, like, discovered plutonium, maybe not by accident, but discovered it that way, and the Clippers and the Thunder have been going at it for years and couldn't do it nearly as well.
2: Well, how could they find uh, an ad that is valuable in that top 55 draft pick that uh, Portland gave to Orlando for
0: Mohawk? And when you consider that the Thunder had a trade exception that they could have used and, and gotten him for that price, like it's, it, obviously Harkless wouldn't be perfect for what they're looking for, but he's just another dude that can play basketball. Right. You know, if you
2: expected that he could make the Open three at times, which he didn't probably early in the series against the Clippers, but uh, by, by the end of it, he was making
1: enough of those to stay on the
0: court. I, I keep on feeling like Kawhi is going to do a really good job on Durant. That doesn't mean he's going to shut him down like, oh, Durant's going to score 10 points or anything like that. But I think he's specially suited to, to just handle that. And I also think they need to do a, a as close a job as they can of pairing, of Popovich of pairing their minutes because the Spurs have other good defenders, but they don't really have another guy that can handle Durant the way that Kawhi should be able to.
2: The you know, ESPN Stats and Info had a really interesting post about this the other day. That Kawhi basically has not only helped Durant to the lowest shooting percentage of anyone who defended him on a regular basis over the last couple of years, but also has you know it's a good process. It's not just randomness, which you, you would expect with Kawhi, but has forced him into the most difficult shot of you know that group of players who has defended on him on a regular basis. So. Definitely some statistical backing for that. But the other, the other I I found is that you know, Danny Green has generally done a pretty good job on Durant and not been as effective on Westbrook. I mean, I, when I view that as the matchups in my mind, I think those two are kind of connected because you're going to have one of those two guys when they're on the court together on Westbrook and one of them on Durant. And uh, in my head, Green makes more sense on Westbrook because I think he's better against guys he has a size advantage on. But uh, Westbrook is had a lot more success against him than Kawhi, which raises the question of, you know, you know do, you, do you look for the best possible matchup on the toughest player, or do you look to maximize both of those
0: matchups? Well, yeah, and that's something that, uh, as somebody who covers the Warriors, that I've seen teams grapple with for years with Clay, is who do you put the who do you put the better guy on? My thought on Danny Green is that Westbrook is smaller than him, but he's so strong that it could be that while his functional size is less that he, he's physical in a way that most other point guards are not so that traditional Danny Green advantage there is a little bit less effectual.
2: Yeah I think that's a, an excellent point but then you think that'd be even more of an issue against Durant, Gargantuan 6'11 athlete than he is but you know if Green can hold his own there I mean if, I, if I'm off I think you know I want to experiment with most of those matchups throughout the early games of the series and maybe not settle on a uh, conclusion until midway through.
0: What's so devastating in a way for the Thunder in terms of this series, I think it's just uh, just so so unfortunate for them, is that they will always have a place for Tony Parker to be because they don't have that third guy. Even if it, they go more offensively capable, whether you consider that Dion Waiters or you consider that Moro, I don't think you have any qualms about putting Tony Parker on that person.
2: No, very true. Yeah, I mean, that's, the Spurs' defensive personnel probably matches up almost perfectly with what you'd in wanting to City in terms of, you know, two quality wing defenders to handle Westbrook and and, uh, Durant, and then, like you said, someone who can be hit against whoever the third guy is. And
0: And that ties in even when you move close to the perimeter, but slightly away from that with Serge Ibaka and and LaMarcus. I mean, it's a little bit different, and LaMarcus is a tough cover, but I think that Serge will do a good job.
2: Yeah, uh, going back to... You know Aldridge and Portland. I feel like the has generally done a pretty good job against them, you know, matches up athletically about as
0: well as you want. And I think that they the Spurs, and with their starting lineup, you know, that they're not going to have to deal with an OKC team that moves the ball a lot. So that can be a good thing or a bad thing, but. A team that stays a little bit more stagnant is more of a problem defensively if you can't handle those matchups, which is actually I think part of the reason why the Warriors have had some struggles with the Thunder in, in recent years, is that you know that you're you're forcing this isolation, which is something that the Warriors kind of want to do anyway, but they don't have the personnel that the Spurs have. But at the Spurs, you're just playing into their hands when you have Kawhi, Danny Green, and Serge Ibaka.
2: Yeah, but I still do think there's a scenario where you know Durant and Westbrook are just so good individually that they, you know, can beat those guys, good good offense beats good defense, and that's, you know, probably what's required of them to win this series. I mean it's you know it's sort of what we saw in two thousand twelve, although James Martin was also a big factor in that. You remember Scott Brooks probably his final moment in the two thousand twelve conference Finals getting really creative is all three of those get a screen for each other late in games and, and take advantage of the first having I mean, the world. Cup, you know. But then even, you know in games 3 and 4 of the 2014 series, where for a while there it looked like, okay, I thought they got Serge Ibaka back, and this series is totally different than it was that San Antonio had won the first two
0: games. That kind of ties in with one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about with this series, which is that I feel like San Antonio's offense with the starting five could struggle with Oklahoma City just because they don't move the ball a ton, and while their talent is, of course, very good, I think that that, that that could be an issue, maybe not in crunch time situations, but just throughout the game, and that could give Oklahoma City some opportunities in transition.
2: Right, I mean, you know, you look at it. the San Antonio, the San Antonio starting five has not been quite as good as, now I'd have to look this up, don't so check it, but I don't think that it's been as good as the Oklahoma City starting five necessarily. That really, where San Antonio makes up ground on everyone else in the league is first and foremost with their second units in the game which, you know, have uh, a very different style to them, I would say. It's not as, you know, David it West taking a lot of mid-long twos, but not maybe as uh, long-two-dependent as the starting lineup often can become. I think with, you know, two traditional big men, you know, Kauai, a lot of isolation that turn into twos, Tony Parker pull-ups, and the so Green is really the only source of three-point shooting, and he's obviously been inconsistent with the long
0: yeah, and they also, the Spurs' second unit has a couple of capable pick-and-roll ball handlers, and of course David West can do that well, so that's, it's not very suitable for Ennis Kanter, who is a very shaky pick-and-roll defender. I
2: mean, I'm kind of curious to see if the Spurs roll out a lot at, at some point with the second unit, because I feel like him versus Ennis Kanter, uh, it facilitates both teams' offense, kind of like we've seen with Al Jefferson at times in the, uh, the Charlotte-Miami series and things like that, where... You know, both of those, match- those matchups play into each other where both of those guys are so much better offensively than they are defensively particularly in the second role that uh, it creates great offense on both sides
0: yeah, I, 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 if I were Pop I would lean more towards West just because I think you can do better to stop, I think that leads to a better net advantage but sure, for, for moments you can use on he's also a fascinating player but yeah, I, I think that we focus a lot because it's so much more interesting on OKC's offense versus the Spurs' defense, but the counter might actually be more impactful in terms of settling the series.
2: Well, to go back to the clutch question that we talked about earlier to start this, you know, we know Oklahoma City's offense has not been as good as it probably should be in those late-game situations. A lot of the reason they've struggled in clutch situations is because the fact that their defense has been, I mean, just not bottom five close to it on a per possession basis during the regular season, and that's a little bit more difficult, I think, even for me to conceptualize, than them struggling offensively with the talent that they have.
0: Yeah, because well, with with their personnel, that doesn't that makes even less sense.
2: Right, because it seems like when Oklahoma City struggles defensively, it's mostly because they're not completely locked in, and uh, you know, I, I can think of Russell Westbrook as a prime culprit for that. And we did see it in a clutch situation in Game Two against Dallas, which they lost in. His poor defense there was a big factor in that, but in general, you think you know late game situations should be when Westbrook is most locked in defensively and actually taking advantage of
0: that. Yeah, uh, one thing I've been thinking about, assuming maybe it's only even for offense defense circumstances, but I would seriously consider putting Andre Roberson on Parker for stretches just to see what he can do. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I feel like we saw that more from Oklahoma City
2: late in the regular season. Maybe I just noticed it more as far as him defending point guard. But again, you get that as with green we were talking about earlier, you get that giant wingspan that just kind of swallows them up and makes it difficult for a smaller player to have any court vision. So that, I, I think, could be a really ideal thing for them. And if that is he is offensively, I still wouldn't be opposed to keeping him in games down the stretch, especially if you go off and defense, because I think him not being out there is probably a small factor in why their defense hasn't been that in those situations.
0: More abstract question, but do you, I think that teams should experiment more with guys like him on ones because you get that length advantage and there are a group of guys that have the quickness to do it. Like KCP has done a magnificent job on point guards.
2: Yeah, to me, those guys are generally the best defenders on point guard. And what makes a point guard defender elite is oftentimes that they can, you know, Ricky Rubio's example of this because he's also got size with a big wingspan, that they can provide that same kind of wing on point guard type defense will also be you know, the primary ball handler at the other end of
0: the court. Yeah, and that's true. That's a big difference between Rubio and, let's say, Avery Bradley who's sliding over and then you get the benefit of not having, you don't even have to put the other guy in the off situation, but as two guards have moved into a lot of different kind of physical abilities, I think there are more places, there, maybe not more places, but there are still places that you can hide a one if you need to do that, but you do have the disadvantage, as you said, of them not being the guy who runs a up.
2: And then the other interesting thing that happens is uh, if you end up seeing a lot of cross matches, like that, who benefits more in transition? You think that San Antonio would have the edge there, or just when finding somebody matching up that Oklahoma City is going to be in those kind of scrambled situations.
0: And that's also a part of the question with Danny Green because if Westbrook's going to be more of a driver. Mm-hmm. Then that that kind of changes things a little bit, but I think actually that's true. That's on the other end of the floor. Like I think Danny Green in a cross match is going to be an absolutely fascinating one for Westbrook because he's one of the best transition defenders in the league.
2: <laughs> yes, I've may, maybe be best in that uh, three on one situation. It's hard to think of anyone
0: else who does what he can do. So if you're if you're Billy Donovan. How much do you think Ennis Kanter is playing in the series? Is he going to do kind of his standard minutes, or do you kind of bound, maybe shift down a little bit less? Ooh, I mean, especially coming of that Dallas
2: series, it's hard to, I think, come into this with the gameplay that he's going to play a lot less, but I think you have to be open to the possibility that, you know, San Antonio is really taking advantage of him in pick-and-rolls, and... Roll, you know, no matter how amazingly productive he might be at the other end of the court. And you would think that, you know, if they'll have a size and strength advantage against that San Antonio second unit they don't really have a traditional center in that group. You know and, and Wes, you know, one of those guys trying to box him out. Uh, so I think I, you have to be open to the possibility that this is not a series for him and you know what the alternative figure out what the alternative is going to be for that, whether it's, you know, extended minutes for Adams, it's Late, they call it into five, things like
0: that. And one thing that we shouldn't discount is that while San Antonio's second unit will do a really nice job on, on Thunder just because they have so much talent, I'm not sure how much of second unit Thunder we're going to see because I think Durant and Westbrook are going to play as close to the full game as they can the whole way through. Right,
2: and that's, I think, one of those things that happened in those series is, you, know, you remember those, those past Oklahoma City playoff runs where Durant is able to go up to 40, 42 minutes a night, and especially now that they are staggering Durant and Westbrook, you're only talking about very short stretches where even, even you're just playing with one of those guys and never a situation where you're
0: playing without both of them. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true, and it will also be fascinating if Danny Green, you know, let's say let's say you end up with Danny Green and, and Kawhi on the Durant-Westbrook combination, whether Pop is going to ever fiddle with Manu Ginobili instead of Tony Parker in the primary ball handler role, because really what you're looking for defensively is probably closer to what Manu brings anyway.
2: And especially if he's matching up with the waiters uh, to finish games, where, you know, he's the one guy who probably has uh, one Thunder player alongside Durant Westbrook who has the physical tools, if not necessarily the skills, to make Parker pay for trying to hide him in that, in that matchup. So, yeah, that'd be intriguing. I, the other question to me is, is there a situation where if Danny Green struggles with his shooting, if he did much of the regular season, where Pop that becomes a, such a big issue that you can't have him on the court defensively, and if that's the case, then what do you do trying to defend either Westbrook or Duran, whichever was wise on
0: yeah, and especially considering Jonathan Simmons has not solidified a spot in the rotation like I expected him to, considering how he played early in the season.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, it's hard to see if Pop trusted Simmons in this series. He got you know two minutes to get the Grizzlies, but pretty much everyone got minutes to get the Grizzlies. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he's really an option. It would have to be a case of, of trusting, you know, maybe Connie Mills to defend Westbrook, and I don't like that, the idea of that. So maybe, maybe scratch the notion altogether.
0: Yeah. Anything else on this series before we do some predictions?
2: Nothing else specifically, justified.
0: So I said last night, and I'm standing by it, that my feeling is Spurs in six. It's always weird to predict a team to win a series this close on the opposing team's home floor, but I just feel like the Spurs aren't going to have any issue with that. And I could see the, the first five games going in a couple of different iterations, but I think San Antonio has some advantages that will be really hard to counter. So my, my leaning is Spurs and six, but I could see a lot of different scenarios in the series. Well
2: obviously that's possible since the outcome side in two thousand fourteen I, I still am going to play the uh, the odds here
0: Spurs but... Yeah, I I mean that's certainly fair and so Nate and I discussed last night that he thinks it would be really hard for O K C to win a game seven in San Antonio given how well they've played at home. I think it's it's unlikely but certainly possible. Well we
2: have seen a lot of teams win any game in San Antonio so far this year which is probably a reason to doubt it is that when you add in the increased home court advantage in Game 7 but I think if any team is not going to be intimidated by that situation it is probably Oklahoma City and we have seen them win an absolutely enormous road game in San Antonio it wasn't Game 7 but that Game 5 in 2012 ultimately was the swing game of the series giving them the opportunity to close out at home as opposed to in that case, happy to go back and potentially win a game seven. So
0: yeah, an OK season a team that has players with high enough ceilings that I I have this feeling with them, part of the reason I've liked them for so long is that when they're at their best, they're just really hard to stop. And those are the types of teams that I I either believe in those type of teams or teams that for whatever reason are facing somebody who's substantially weaker than them in a Game 7 because it's a little bit more impervious to the effects that you see, whether it be home court or the reps or whatever it can be. Cause it, because if you can reach that level, if they get to their supernova, the Spurs the Spurs, as great as they are defensively, will struggle.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. You can't you can't ever rule the thunder out anyway anytime, anywhere.
0: Yeah. Which which is what part of what makes this series so exciting is that they can just they can just get to that level. But we'll move on to what we just found out last night. You were there at the game that settled it. Warriors, Blazers, there are a lot of different directions to go, but I think the most interesting one, and you wrote a great piece on this, is how the series will look before Stephen Curry comes back, if he does,
2: right. And at that point, obviously, this before we knew that this was going to be serious. It's crazy how quickly things evolved, because I originally wrote this, you know, wrote about it Sunday afternoon when we knew that Curry had a, a sprained knee. Figured he probably had a sprained but Didn't know how long he was going to be out. And then at that point, you know, the, I kind of was giving, honestly, like, tokens. okay, well, here's how they would match up with the Blazers hypothetically. But realistically, like we all knew at that point, it was probably going to be flippers, uh, who had the 2-1 lead in the series, and then obviously that changes in a matter of minutes Both their home and that series. So, you know, I had some time, even though we didn't know for sure until last night, to kind of consider what a Warriors-Blazers series would look like. And to me, I'm curious what you think about this. I think this is a series where we are going to see a ton of Draymond Green.
0: I agree with you completely. I think it's it's a really fascinating matchup for him on both ends of the forge, just who they choose to put him on, whether how they're handling it with switches and everything like that. But yeah, I think it's going to be really it's going to be really big for him, and it's going to be early on. It'll be a test to, on Lillard and McCollum to see how they handle size because whatever alignments they go with defensively, those guys are going to have somebody bigger than them on Exactly.
2: I mean, that's the one thing that's the silver lining of Steph Curry's injury is. Warriors kid who were already very good defensively get slightly better with Sean Livingston and point guard with the size that he brings there. And that's one of the things I really like about that small lineup for the Warriors series is that if it's you know, Livingston if it's Livingston, Thompson, Iguadala, Barnes, and Green, you've got four, five guys who are all between six foot six and six foot eight. I think Draymond Green's tied for the shortest to that group. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. So you can switch anything. Portland's going to run pick and roll. You know, obviously that's the base of their offense. We saw the Cookers have some success early in the series trapping uh, the pick and roll before eventually Portland was able to find enough other offense, guys that work with all of it, and will learn to beat that strategy. which We didn't see as much of after in the injury. But in this series, yeah, I think it's just going to be a lot of switching and hoping to force Portland in isolation in situations where Lillard and McCollum are not going to have major athleticism advantages to beat somebody one on
0: one. Well and the big concern for Portland is not only that the Warriors can switch it, but they have smart enough guys that they can trap and leave the right guys open and they have rim protection more regularly on the court. Of course DeAndre had a huge effect when he was out there on Lillard and McCollum at the basket. But depending on how the Warriors want to do it, whether it be Draymond's underrated rim protection at center or when they have Bogan and Mazzilli out there, like they're going to have people, other than when Spades plays, they're going to have people out there that will be able to affect shots and that are smart enough to be in the right places at the right times. And that was something I noticed last night, was just that whenever a possession was when the Blazers were working hard and getting any sort of ball or player movement, mm-hmm. there was going to be a seam somewhere, and usually it led to CJ McCollum being wide open. <laughs> right,
2: I, I we're probably both to the same two players that led to McCollum three-pointers in the fourth quarter, which were both crucial baskets. Yeah, I mean, the Clippers just, A, don't have that kind of discipline, and then B, even some of the guys who didn't do, like, JJ Redick, was so badly hobbled that he couldn't cover a lot of ground defensively when McCollum started, you know, moving around the rapidly. rapidly. That's not going to be an issue for the Warriors.
0: No, not at all and the warriors offense will will be struggling, you know, just because they don't have they don't have the right kind of guys, so you'll have those times where they're generating kind of like the blazers at moments in games 1 and 2 of this of their previous series, which is that you're generating open looks for guys that don't make them all the time. And you know, that's why there will be some like, kind of some higher variance in the early games in this series just because of that because you know if there's a game when Harrison Barnes is getting gets four open threes and none of them go in, it's going to be a lot harder for the warriors to score, but I think Portland's half-court offense is going to struggle a lot, and the Warriors will be focused enough on stopping them in transition that I, I think that it, it will be a struggle for Portland the whole way through. A struggle does not mean impossible; far, far, far from it. But it will be hard for them.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that you know, like I said, the Warriors get even better defensively without Curry. And, you know, they have I think the ceiling of being as good as anyone defensively in the league when they're really locked in without it support so you know portland's going to need to make shots you know particularly have little and make difficult shots that didn't go down early in the series against the clippers and went down towards the end but.
0: and we talked about the idea of how portland doesn't have many guys who generate offense for them you know really it's only two and Plumley can Plumley can capitalize when he basically gets an opening but The same issue is true on the other end, which is that Portland has at least one, usually two, shaky defenders on the floor at any given time.
2: They they have to because the fact that those guys are so important for them offensively. And Golden said, I guess that's one of the nice things about having such a democratic offense is that uh,
0: you know you're going to be able
2: to attack those those mismatches and not have to you know feel like you necessarily have to you know you're going to ride Klay Thompson, but. You can also get reliable buckets uh, It's a low-scoring game, like Sean Livingston's ability to post up either Willard or McCollum any time he's matched up against them. You know, those kind of shots will probably become positive shots because of the fact that it's a it's a relatively low-scoring game.
0: Even though it's not their greatest offensive option, I still think we're going to see a lot of clay post-ups as well, just because he's comfortable doing it, and I think they're going to. They're, I think it's very likely that the Blazers will be less cognizant of kind of that advantage as opposed to with Livingston where it's just so obvious because that's such a large part of his offense.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. And, uh, the one thing is it might be easier to bring help against Thompson at the post because of the fact that if he's down there, you've lost your best shot of shooter around him.
0: Yeah, which is another part of the reason why I think Brandon Rush in the early games could be very important because while he's not the greatest defender, he's also not terrible defensively, he is their best their second best, I guess, because play obviously is best, or just open shot hitter. And that's incredibly valuable in this series.
2: Yeah, it is. It's a low-scoring series, especially just... It's incredible that the Warriors, by the way, were able to make as many threes as they did against Houston the last two games without the guy who made them on three-pointers in the NBA history being on the court, which I don't know if it's a testament to just, you know, the Warriors' execution offensively or how that Rockets score the season.
0: I think it's a little bit of both. Right, the answer is Yeah. And and it's hard in a way to because the Warriors did so well against the Rockets offensively, could like compare it at least to expectations to be like oh well they're gonna you know that they're gonna struggle with the Blazers but that Rockets team was was an aberration in so many ways after, you know for that end of the third end of game four and then for game five.
2: Indeed, I mean I, I don't think you'd read almost anything into that. Which that was one thing is curious doesn't take many questions last night after the game. But one thing I was curious to ask him is like, can you? how do you prepare for this series because all of the head-to-head games obviously Steph Curry played and they're such a different team without Curry do you just have to rely on those you know six games or whatever it was that they have played this season without Curry to scout them or how much do you take from that, that matchup
0: yeah because it's it's not only like you know oh it's a different guy in skill set but the Warriors offense when Stephen Curry is on the floor and healthy is all through Stephen Curry so it's a completely different reinvention it's kind of like if if there was a, a band and they had to change their lead singer to someone who just didn't have the same, like, didn't have the same range, so they they might sing the same songs, but they have to sing it totally differently.
2: Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to the thought about if the Warriors up played green, primarily is better. I'm curious to see how Portland would match up with that. We talked earlier about how they have, you know, other than Golden State, almost as many two-way wing players as anyone in the league. So I think we would probably see, you know, Cherry Stotz goes small to counter it. If you wanted know, to go to Alpha Rucanito at center with you know two wings and column and Willard, if you want to go that small, in the, in the regular season you play Bopley a little bit at center to try to counter Draymond Green there. It's hard to see him probably playing in the play off
0: One that would be possible, and I've actually talked about the idea of the Warriors doing this the other way, is having Plumley at center but not having him guard Draymond at center. Have him put him on Harrison Barnes probably or somebody like that. So, you know, he's not going to be able to help out as much but just to, just to do it in that way. And you know that that has its limitations especially because, you know, you're you're going to have some weird things defensively especially if you're if they're generating some switches, but I think that's a possibility as well.
2: For sure. I mean, so if you do that cancer during their supposed matchup in January or February, or whatever that whenever that was. That kind of set a bit of a template I think for you know teams having some success or giving that opportunity. And I, I think it is important because Will so Plumley is not the shooter that some of the wings boys can bring in or he is probably their third best passer and playmaker, so having to take him off the court would be a hit for them
0: offensively. Again, yeah, it ties in with the idea of why you go small, why teams do that is because, generally speaking, smaller players are more capable of doing the, doing things that help your offense, whether that be shooting, ball handling, making smart passes. Plumlee is better than their smalls in that way, so you're making a very different choice. Right, and it, so
2: much of what they do offensively is predicated on his passing ability, not just got trapped, you know, like his clipper in the series that was not repeatedly, but also, whether it's,
0: you know, triple-handed making plays with the elbows, things like that, that uh, you wouldn't want to lose up in the offense. I'm excited also to see what Alan Crabb does. He's going to be an important player for them just because while they have enough wings, they're going to need contributions from him, and because depending on how the Warriors divide the assignments, he's probably going to get an easier, an easier guy on him than Lillard and McCollum. So can he take advantage of while it'll still be a tough matchup of whoever's on him.
2: Right, another factor that, like so many, changed from the first two games of that series. In his case, a little beyond that, I guess it wasn't until Game 5 that crap really got going, but then was a the big factor in Game 5 and 6, and an interesting thing we saw from Terry Stotts late in the game, I, I don't think I got quite far enough on Tom to see if you guys got into this, but the fact that Terry Stotts was going to finish with media who has been such a big...
0: Yeah, we we didn't actually talk about that too much, but it is it is important to show his willingness to do things like that. But it's also strange because they're gonna like if you think about it in terms of the precedent for the Warriors. Of course, the Clippers were at a very different place. Is that there? I think their bigger issue is going to be stopping the Warriors, not creating shots. Right. I, I would definitely agree with that. But yeah, he, but no matter what, Crab is going to have that lingering thing. And also, one of the gargantuan questions in the series is that you, when Curry is out, when Curry is, is unavailable, most teams you would think about, oh, they'll scale up the minutes for the other guys. And so then it'll create a smaller need for the players. But the Warriors are different because their guys, you know, like the Andre Guadalas and Sean Livingston's in the world, can't really expand their minutes too much. For Sean's reason, it's because of health, and for Andre, injuries and other things. And because, theoretically for them, uh, unless they need it because they're behind in the series or something like that, you're going to need to save at least some of those guys for what would be a substantially harder Western Conference Finals, regardless of the opponent. So
2: I think what becomes interesting there is, you know, I'm living with this playing 30 minutes a night. The other 18 of my guard, presumably Ian Clark... That's an opportunity for the Blazers. I think that I think they're going to look at it as an opportunity because of the fact that they always will have either Lillard or McCollum out there. And uh, first off, you know it's an easier defensive matchup for those two guys when Clark gets out there. And then it makes it a little bit more difficult, I think, for the Warriors to get at in, least individual defender on those two players, uh, particularly you know in terms of managing them. Pick-up.
0: If they're going to use Clay defending Willard for stretches, which I fully expect them to do, because Sean isn't great in a lot of those kind of circumstances with a guy is as good as Willard, then I think the Warriors, considering Andre will be, Andre Guadal will be the primary ball handler, I, that's a situation that I would advocate for them to use Brandon Rush a little bit more just because you're not going to be getting playmaking from Clark anyway, so you just have a guy who's a little bit bigger. But that doesn't mean Kerr's going to do that. Kerr will probably play Barbosa anyway.
2: <laughs> right. It's just not consistent with done over the course of the year.
0: Anything else you can think of on the series, or do you want to go to predictions?
2: You know, the other interesting aspect here is the fact that Game 1 is being played at 12.30 on Sunday, but it's finished their series at about 10.30 p.m. on a Friday night, so you know, they've got 38 hours in between, and, uh, Scott did mention that post game, and how it's going to be a pretty vanilla game plan in game one. So, I think that that gives Golden State you know, an enormous edge in game one of this series, and the series almost in some ways will really start in game two. Then you've got three days off between that and game three to see further adjustments from both sides. So, the series I feel like might not look very similar from game to game because of you know, the, the ability to adapt, and then also the potential Curry coming back at some
0: point. Yeah, and there's also a the, the timing beyond the obvious Curry implications because the game is being pushed back. You know, there's a possibility that he can play in Game 4. The other kind of really lingering possibility with that for me is that we talked about how the Warriors, their, some of their guys, you can't really scale up their minutes, and that's true, and that's still going to be true, but the gap between those games means the Warriors can push it a little bit harder in Game 2 if they have to. And the Blazers can't really because their guys are their guys, and you know you can't really play Damian Lillard more than they've already been playing him. So I think that's, you know, the Warriors have a much bigger advantage in Game 1 because of the timing for Portland and the Warriors have had so much time off. But I think that could end up being a factor as well in Game 2.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, And even though guys like Livingston and Nick can't scale up their men, I think you will see more from Clay Thompson and Draymond Green to try to minimize the time that either of those guys are on the court or even that just one of them is on the court by themselves.
0: Yeah, I could see them both in the low 40s, maybe even the mid-40s for Game 2.
2: Right, which is something I don't think we've seen since last year's finals. Right.
0: And also the Warriors, one of the weird things about this series now is while Curry is out, however long that is, They're actually a very talented big team, but, you know, they have a lot of guys that can play center, but they might not use them because their smalls are good and they they might be a better counter for what Portland has. So you have this weird thing where they might be moving away from a theoretical strength because of another strength.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting for both teams, because if Davis and Plumlee are certainly among Portland's eight best players, it's a little hard to rank them, I guess, at some point, but, uh, you know, if. If there's a lot of small ball in the series, I think we might not see very much of Ed Davis at all, and it's going to be super where we the, the Leopard
0: series. So I said I think that this series could go a couple of different ways, but I think it's a pretty close to even series when Curry is out. And my prediction right now is that that's going to be for the first four games. So I'm thinking split, split. So that means you know that the Blazers maybe the Blazers win game two, and then they split and split in Portland, and then. From there on, I think the Warriors win the two games with Curry, so that would mean a Warriors in six.
2: I think it tend to be higher on the Warriors without Curry than most everyone else. So
0: I'm actually going
2: with Golden State at five. I think that they will take three of the first four in this series. The Golden State at home managed to take a game in Portland and then finish it out back at home. Maybe, maybe not even needing to bring back Curry.
0: Well, and that ties in with something, because both you and Nate expect the Warriors to win the, both games at Oracle, and to me, if the Warriors are in that spot, if they're up 2 nothing, then I would tell him basically point blank, you're not playing in, you're not playing in Portland. Because then no matter what, you're, the worst case scenario is it's 2-2 with a game at, at Oracle, which you should be favored in, you know, should be meaningfully favored in. And even then, you could, the Warriors could win back-to-back games against Portland, so, if, if they do that, I think it's much less... I think they have a lot more, I guess, moral high ground would be the kind of a way to think about it with Curry than if than if it's 1-1. Yeah, because
2: it's a lot easier to tell him to be patient if the, the Warriors are in a better
0: position. Yeah, and of course, if they happen to go up 3-0, then under no circumstances. Yeah. We, we don't have to spend as much time on it, but let's do... Actually, let's let's go with the, the, the series that we already know before we get into the other one. I, I just feel like Cleveland is a terrible matchup for Atlanta... No, they don't really have anybody anymore now that Tamari Carroll's gone to, to guard LeBron. They have strength. They're, they're a nice team. But I, I think that this is just a rough series for them.
2: We're on the same page here. And the thing that stands out to me is now the, the Hawks losing on the last night of the season at Washington, a loss that seemed inexplicable at the time, now looms even larger. Because had they won that game, you know, you could be looking at, A fairly tough matchup to play for Cleveland in the second round against, you know, maybe Miami, whatever, however exactly things would have fallen. And then Atlanta on the other side of the bracket, where I would, at this point, favor them out over whoever wins that Toronto-Indiana series. I think that they are probably now the second best team in the East, at least with Kyle Lowry's elbow issues. But because of the fact that they slipped to fourth, instead they have to play Cleveland in the second round, and I I don't like their chances of advancing for the same reasons that you don't.
0: It's also concerning for Atlanta because while they really don't have anybody to guard LeBron, the possibilities with Kyrie are also challenging. I think, personally, that Atlanta's best defender for Kyrie is Kent Bazemore, but putting Kent Bazemore on Kyrie Irving opens up a, a, another defensive Pandora's box with just wherever you put their point guard, then.
2: Yeah, and who defends LeBron? Then scenario I guess Paul Milsack, and then who defends Who defends Kevin Love? Like, yeah, it's like putting your finger in the, uh, the dike and you plug one hole, and in this case, I think two others crop
0: up. Yeah, and when you're sitting in the spot where your two best players are your four and your five, you can't realistically say, oh, we'll, we'll just go small and put in another wing, because that absolutely unequivocally makes it worse.
2: Yep. Yeah, so there's... There do not seem to be a lot of easy answers for my quick
0: And you know, there is certainly a possibility that Al Horford and Millsap have good games and either make some closer than maybe they quote unquote should be, or that they you know that they can win at least one of the games in Atlanta. But to concoct a way that they win this series is very difficult for me.
2: At the very least, they have to shoot like we've seen them shoot a couple of times uh, against Boston Law with throughout the entire series. As supposed to having the kind of nights where they generate good shots and they just don't go down, like we saw a lot of last year's playoffs. And then it's the game that they lost. Because it still
0: it so I have this as Cleveland in five. I feel pretty comfortable in that. But, you know, if it goes six, it's no big deal. Right there with you also, uh, Cavs in five. So we have two game sevens that will be on Sunday. And I'm really excited for both, not only because I've enjoyed these series substantially. They were the two series I was most anticipating going into the first round but also because I think that both have a very real chance of the road team winning the Game 7.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that both of those teams have already won on the road in this series, and, you know, Indiana probably should have won Game 5, just as Charlotte did, so their recent road win makes you feel good about their chances, along with the fact that the series of you know, other than the first two games where the Heat really blitzed the Hornets, they have this competitive series and in the Pacers case they've actually outscored the
0: Raptors ever. yeah and so okay well I guess we'll start here if, which upset would you be less surprised by?
2: so Indiana over Toronto because I, I think that in some ways playing at home is a bit of a disadvantage for the Raptors until they can win a playoff series and get the cloud of here we go again out of the Air Canada center.
0: and I believe I saw someone might have been McGolver, tweeted that Toronto has never won a Game 7 home or road.
2: Well, I mean, they, the only playoff series they ever won was a five-game series. So, that's by right. definition, not,
0: not. Yeah, that's true. Yeah,
2: there's a lot of not great history.
0: What, and the other huge problem for them is that the, the structural disadvantages that they have against the Pacers haven't changed at all. You know, Paul George is still going to be defending DeMar DeRozan, and yeah, DeRozan can have a big night. He already had one with Paul George on him, but... Those, uh, George Hill's still gonna be guarding Kyle Lowry, you know, th- those things haven't changed and as far as I can tell, those pacers are, are pretty healthy right now.
2: And then the other aspect of his biggest advantage that they have in the series was the minute that the pacers were playing without any of their three best the players. So they detailed at length, among others, during the series and you know, Paul George extends minutes and doesn't come out at the start of the fourth quarter like he did not in game six last night. It, that takes away one of Toronto's biggest
0: edge. Yeah, and it also takes away a potential counter of what they want to do with DeRozan, but, and I think George Hill could potentially play more minutes in a game seven too, which is really bad news for them for that second year as well because presumably that could be, let's say, at the beginning of the second quarter.
2: Right, I mean, it doesn't necessarily seem like Vogel would think that is as much of a priority as George not to it himself but certainly possible that will be one of the interesting things to watch they also have you know it's not as quick a turnaround because they're playing Sunday night but a fairly quick turnaround so it's not like there's a, a lot of wrestling between these
0: games. there are a lot of different players and part of what I'm so excited about this is there are a lot of different players that could have that not a star making game but have a really notable one with Valentinus being one of them but he's been very Inconsistent offensively in this series. Obviously, his rebounding has been wonderful, but his his offensive overall impact has vacillated pretty seriously.
2: When you said start making two nights, I just kind of naturally assumed you were going to Miles Turner.
0: Miles Turner and Norman Powell. Yeah, Norman
2: Powell. the great guest star of the uh,
0: 2016 playoffs. I it to. Have, I mean, I, I can't say that I can't say that I love him more than Miles Turner because Miles Turner is my guy, but I could I could see Powell like if if Casey's really willing to give him the reins. He could really be an asset in this because he's arguably their best two way wing, so that, of course, excludes Kyle Lowry. And he's been a lot better than I expected him to be in transition, which, you know, if they can actually get some stops, would be very useful.
2: And another way to get the crowd going is uh, keep them from being, you know, by intense and silent in the game, as he did at the end of game five, and then still tied up.
0: Nate has been hammering home the point, point. I believe he's right, with that Miles Turner struggles defensively guarding stretch fours, but that Toronto hasn't really pushed that as hard as they need to. Is your instinct that that's going to stay kind of like what, it, what it's been for the rest of the series?
2: I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, things with enough for Toronto in the second half of Game 6 that everything has to be on the table in terms of adjustments for, for the Raptors going into Game 7.
0: Yeah, and another team, Toronto, that stumbled onto having a surplus of wings, so they could do some really different stuff out there if they want to. We just haven't really seen them. Well, we saw it a little bit. They played Powell at the four or some in Game Five.
2: Right. I mean, that's the lineup that essentially won them the game, and uh, you know that that grouping. So I don't think we could see anything, but I'm not as excited about you. I'm just terrified on behalf of Ra- the Raptors and their fans. If the Pacers lose this game. It's like, okay, we had it. You know, it was a nice run. We'll get it next year. And Toronto lose. I mean, I I, just, I don't know how
0: they go on. It would be tough, and that's part of the reason why I wanted them to trade Demar to Derozan is that I saw that as a possibility and something that I floated on Twitter last night. You were you were in Portland doing more important things. Was this question that I've been pondering for a couple months now of. DeR- Neymar Rosen is from Compton. He's an L.A. guy, went to USC, pretty young. For certain for certain circumstances, I could conceive of an argument where he would rather take a 3-plus-1, meaning three years in a player option, in L.A. than a 4-plus-1 in Toronto. And certainly,
2: I mean, you know, he seems to enjoy Toronto. He seems to love playing Kyle Lowry. So those things are important along the fact that, you know, in addition to... The guaranteed here might not be quite as important for you because of for him. Because if his age, as you mentioned, it's not like an uh, Al Horford or Mike Conley where it seems unlikely that by the time they next him free agency, that they would be able to make a similar amount of money. But, you know, uh, as you've often said, we you know that we, we haven't gotten to see what he's really interested in since this is his first time that he has a certain free agency, and we'll find out. And if what happens tomorrow they influence that of- decision.
0: And that has a whole bunch of ripple effects as well, because Lowry's going to be a free agent after another year. And I'm not criticizing them for doing it, at least with Falanchunas, but the Raptors committing the money they did last summer to Corey Joseph, to Damari Carroll, to Falanchunas, and to Terrence Ross, means that if DeRozan left, they would not have the flexibility to improve. So then you're you're looking at an East team that, as as much as I've been critical of DeRozan at moments— that is going to be probably worse than they were this year going into Kyle Lowry's free agency as an unrestricted free agent.
2: Well I think the good thing is just that other than Carroll, you know, who obviously has the health questions at this point and we already thought the back end of his contract might not be very good just because of the stage, you know, before that situation, those other guys are movable if you if you want to move them into space.
0: Yeah, but it's hard for the Raptors even to... They're one of those teams people talk about, yeah, they can do that, but cap space isn't probably as valuable to them as it is other teams. They did well getting getting guys, Joseph and Carroll, off of other teams last year, but both of those were unusual circumstances because their prior team was not willing to offer them the money that the Raptors did. And it's a lot easier to pull guys in that kind of a circumstance than when you have to do it. And, I mean, Biombo is another huge question mark with him. He's been fabulous, but... They probably won't have the ability to retain him unless he's willing to take less.
2: Yeah, you would have to take one year at the mid level with some sort of a weak week promise that uh, we'll make it up to you and when we have your early third rights in twenty seventeen.
0: Of course, it's early, and but you and I both love talking about the off season. But depending on what Kevin Durant does, like it's possible that the East, the top end of the East, doesn't get better next year. You know, Cleveland will probably be Cleveland unless they do something crazy. But it really does open up the east for another team.
2: <laughs> and the question then becomes which other team? Because you could just probably name five or six, maybe even seven, and, you know, probably Washington should lost in that group despite not being in the playoffs this year.
0: Yeah, and if you know, depending on what Al Horford does, Toronto or not Toronto, Atlanta could either be in that group or not be in that group.
2: Yeah. Boston has a lot of upside control. You know, probably more, much more upside potential than downside potential for this team. But yeah, I it's, it's. I guess it an opportunity for someone who's willing to be aggressive and go out and make moves to potentially position themselves is the alternative
0: to those. And speaking of teams that are aggressive and making moves, the last game is Miami versus Charlotte. Miami, of course, is they're in one of their downsides just because Chris Bosh is out, but. This has been a really, really fun series, and unfortunately due to injury, Game 7 could look a little bit different, just depending on what Nick Batum can do.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a, a shame because of the fact that I, I would like to see this entire series with Nick Batum help even just making two threes while well, completely hobbled in Game 5 saw you know the kind of impact he could have. It, it, it strikes me that you know the way it matchup up with Miami and this goes back to, I guess, the theme of this podcast is to have in many wing players with size probably as possible because the fact that you need to be able to counter. this you don't want to go with uh, you know they've gone with Jeremy Litt Kim Walker and time in this series but that presents an issue because if you have to have Lindsey Ben Way he's a post-up threat Jim Johnson's a post-up threat so that's one problem but you also don't want to have too much size on the court because of the fact that Ben the Wall mobility and shooting is an issue of power forward like we've seen many, like this is a series where the Hornets need to get as many wins as possible, and their very best one was healthy for maybe two games, maybe three, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you, and that also is part of what leads me to think that Miami's going to win that game.
2: I think so, too. I mean, first off, you know, in Game 7, you should probably fall to the whole team as the most likely winner, no matter what, but... And then there's also the question of how much the ankle continues to bother him, you know, Cody Miller, and all of the minor injuries from the Arlen have left them less in full strength.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. So, as a basketball fan, we will exclude Spurs Thunder because I, I would be shocked if that wasn't number one with a bullet. Of these other three games, the Sunday games, which of them is most exciting to you?
2: I I mean, I think it probably is Indiana-Toronto on Sunday just because of the fact that there's so much riding on it. And then Charlotte-Miami, you know, again, not as optimistic about it being as exciting a game as it would be if Charlotte were fully healthy, but still a chance to be that we've got two really good finishes in a row and have a chance at a third there. So I think Oklahoma State-Portland is probably lowest on the list, but it's still intriguing to me just to see how, the Warriors without Scott Curry play against a team that is not preparing for vacation.
0: If the stakes were different, I would actually probably have Warriors-Portland number one, just because I want to see what those two concepts of teams look like against each other, but it being a game seven pushes the other two games above it. And for me, Indiana-Toronto Indiana, Indiana Toronto just has so much intrigue because of the, the long-term impacts and has a lot of players that have a strong opinion on and they're all going to be really fun, though. I think this is going to be an excellent week of basketball. Yeah, I mean,
2: it'll be uh, a long day of basketball, but it be a very good one, I think. And the other aspect is, going back to what I said earlier, we may just not learn that much in Warriors' play in game one because of the fact that the players haven't had the chance to fully prepare for Golden State like they will be ready for this two games.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. Uh,
2: anything else you want to discuss? Do we, do we have any thoughts on the ball? I think they didn't catch you and Nate talking about that yet. But, uh, we did. But that we, if you me. want to
0: talk about it, we can talk about it.
2: I wrote about that last night very quickly after it happened. It was uh, very it was, good. During the first half of Blazers, the Blazers-Clippers game, which is a bit of a blur to me, unfortunately, in a result. But, you know, I think, I mean, it, we all expected this, but uh, it still seemed like a very good time for the Lakers to get it
0: done. Yeah, I think you can't, you think the Lakers realistically, could not have been done better than Walton in the overall big picture. I mean, he's not, he's such a, a kind of an unproven entity as a head coach just because he was Kerr's assistant and it was his system, and of course the Warriors had such good talent. But if you are the Lakers, you are looking for a coach that will, at the worst, not be a hindrance to free agents and at best be somebody who can woo them. Walton certainly does that. Somebody who is can fit personality wise with management above him that also can change because you know why Tibbs would have been a problem is that Tibbs would wanted more personnel control and he would have probably tried to fill any vacuum that was created by the theoretical Jim Genie transfer so you have that possibility that Luke just won't do you know he'll I'm sure he'd like to be a voice in the room like Kerr is but he's not going to be the voice in the room and he's not going to agitate for it So I think that, and the point that you brought up in your piece that I really liked is also that he should have some really good ideas for how to handle D'Angelo Russell, and I would extend that to if they got Ben Simmons, I think that Luke Walton would be a very good fit for a forward who has good court vision and can handle the ball.
2: Right. As I mentioned in there, you know, Simmons' number one comparable in my shady college version is Draymond Green, so certainly some similarities, very different voters and uh, personalities, but in terms of skill set, and particularly offensively, a lot
0: of similarities. Well, what's funny about that is I was actually alluding to Luke Walton. I wasn't alluding to Draymond, but Draymond's oh. certainly a fair <laughs> fit. Yeah, well, Walton, in much the same
2: way,
0: yeah, Granted, Walton like was that. a much lower prospect, but it's kind of the same idea.
2: Yeah. No, <laughs> so I, I think that of those, that, uh, that probably the most important thing is, is what you mentioned about working with, you know, potential management change. Because the one thing that was a question mark with this, let like Byron Scott go you know, six days ago, which seems like many weeks ago now, is go, so, okay, well, what happens if Kopchek and Jim Butt hire a coach, and then all of a sudden they're not in the picture here? What happens then? Well, one guy. <laughs> knew would work perfectly in that situation was with Walton so I, I guess they had to have a pretty strong sense that he was probably going to take the
0: job yeah I, I'm guessing they did and he's and of course the, you have that thing with the Lakers that the people who are connected with that organization are often connected with it for a long time and Walton he checks so many boxes that even though he has these uncertain aspects to it I think that that, that made him made him a clear-cut choice for that position even though, you know, even though you do have that uncertainty with things that people like you and I actually usually really value. I mean, the idea of, like, will he be able to get guys to try on defense and things like that, which is such an important part of coaching, that's a little bit of a question. But when he does everything yeah. else so well, you're willing to look past it. Yeah. And it's not, and, and what's important with that also is that it's not a no for him. You know, like, it's not saying you have to overlook a negative. You have to overlook uncertainty, which is very different.
2: Yeah. The funny thing about the timing was, so probably about 15 minutes before this was announced, uh, I was going to get dinner with Eric Gunderson of the Columbia and Malika Anders of the AP, and we were having a conversation about the possibility where I would say, oh yeah, if I'm bald, I'm going to, you know, I'm 36, I'm young, I've got plenty of time to get the couch." coach, I'm going to surprise this Warriors thing as long as it lasts. And almost immediately afterwards, you've it down. So were you surprised by the decision?
0: I was a little bit surprised by the timing because what Luke had the ability, had the ability to be patient with, you know, so what I would, if I had been him, of course, he and I are wired very differently. I would have waited to see what happened in the lottery because, of course, right. that's a huge difference in terms of the value of, of what you're getting, of what you're getting into. But if that's the job he wanted. Then I understand it. And I can completely, I can completely get why that would be the case. You know, it's where he played. He had success there as a player. It is a city I think he would be happy to live in long term. And those opportunities do not present themselves very often. If he did not take the Lakers job now and he wanted it, you don't know that you have to assume it wouldn't come up next year because they're not the Kings. And so you have to just kind of, you have to be ready to say, okay, even if if that's the job I want, it might be five, 10, 20 years. And I can understand why he didn't want to let that go.
2: Well, my joke earlier was that it has come up routinely every two years for a long period of time here. But, yeah, you have to understand, well, you you know, the timing is never going to be perfect, probably. So you just take the timing when when it's there. And it was pretty clear from Ramona Shelburne's great piece today on ESPN.com that, uh, you know, this was where Walt wanted to be. And so if that's
0: the case, then, then now it's not. Yeah, he's sure gonna regret it when Durant signs with the Warriors in July. <laughs> but I'm, I'm excited also that you have these coaches in the Pacific Division, and of course we don't know who the Kings are going to do. But at least the three, you know, and, and Earl Watson, Luke Walton, and Steve Kerr, I'm reasonably confident that they all have relationships considering their time in the league. Yes, yeah, and as you pointed out, they're uh, they're tied to the Pac-10. Yeah, we just need a U we need a UW guy. Well, and to to balance it out a little bit.
2: Uh, yeah, was, uh, uh, George Irvin, I think, is the last you know, head coach. It's been a while since uh, I feel like we've had, had someone on the sidelines.
0: When Seattle gets a team again, Brandon Roy can be the head coach. I, I fully endorse him. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's
2: a lot of fun as always. And uh, look forward to enjoying the second round in game seven.
0: Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read him at ESPN Insider, where he puts out so much quality content. You can also follow him on Twitter, at KPelton, that's K-P-E-L-T-O-N. Apologies again for the audio quality. He was driving on his way back, and he's such a busy guy that I take advantage of any opportunity I can get to talk to him, and I think that the content there was, was great, so I, I stand by it as that, and of course, I apologize that the audio quality isn't what I what I hope it to be, but... There's nothing that can be done about that in this circumstance, especially considering how soon the games are starting. And talking a little bit with somebody who who writes for ESPN Insider is a reasonable enough segue into a really cool thing that I'm a part of now, which is The Athletic. So The Athletic is a sports startup that began in Chicago, and it uses a subscription-based model. And the reason that I'm approaching that and think it's a great idea is because I think it is the future of sports writing. It is a more reliable revenue-based model, and I think that the reader experience is personally better than a more ad-based system, which can be obtrusive both on the mobile platform and on desktop, which is mostly how I do my reading, especially long form. And The Athletic has done well in Chicago with that, and I am heading up the Golden State Warriors branch of what hopefully will be an overall San Francisco Bay Area version of The Athletic. We're starting with The Warriors because there isn't really a better time to strike than this Playoff run for what was already a historic regular season team. We'll see what happens with Steph Curry's injury, but you know it's, it, it will definitely be interesting no matter what. And I'm excited to bring that to you. I've been energized by the opportunity. Part of what I'm doing is making sure that people who are committing money to this, and I'm hoping it's going to be beyond Warriors fans, just people who are looking for good sports writing that happens to be about the Golden State Warriors or be focused on them, is. Something that is worthy of your money and of your time. I've always said, and this was in my Reddit AMA, which was over the week, that one of the goals in everything that I do, except for Twitter, is to make sure that it is worth the reader's time, because I really do value that. And for me... Making it worth their money and their time is another step up, and it's a meaningful step in that way because there are so many other things, whether it be bills or entertainment or anything else that are are worthy of people's time. But I'm really proud of what we're building there, and the response has been great so far, so you can go to theathletic.com slash SF Bay is the Bay Area partner. You can just go to theathletic.com. It's a wonderful venture. I'm thrilled with the people that I'm working with. I've only been there, you know, very short period of time. The site launched this week. But it's been fantastic so far, and that will be, for those of you, some people have expressed concern about this, it will go on top of my other things. I will still be writing for Real GM, I will still be recording for Real GM, I will still be writing for the Sporting News, and of course, I will do Dunked On as, as long as Nate Duncan will have me. So, I love doing all of those things, this is just a supplement to all that, and hopefully a big part of it in the long term, and I'm very optimistic about that. So, if you have any feedback... Ideally on the podcast, but really on anything. You can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also email me, uh, Danny LaRue, NBA at com is the email I use for that sort of thing. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. Sometimes I respond really late. I actually owe people a couple of those now, but that's the nature of this. But my promise to you is that I will read everything if you take the time to send it, because I think really that's what's most important. And... It's a lot of fun doing this, doing everything. It's amazing to really have made something, you know, resi- that's really a life out of this. Is something that I honestly never expected. I, when I got into this seven years ago and started writing even before that, just as a stress release from law school, I referred to it for my fr- to my friends for years as the greatest hobby in the world. And to be able to convert the greatest hobby into the world into an actual job is. Beyond my wildest dreams. So I appreciate all of you helping me make that possible. Of course, subscribing to The Athletic is another way to keep doing that, but you can do whatever you're doing and writing a review rating the podcast or dunked on or anything else and even just word of mouth. Those are things that are very important for how this is going and also for whatever you listen to as if you want it to keep going downloading every episode whether or not you listen to it is something that is important because that goes into our ratings subscribers doesn't really I think because it's difficult to calibrate right now but downloads do so do that with if it's this podcast if it's anything else because I want everybody to succeed and thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day
1: Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-pack and 50% off a caravan 10-foot-by-10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale, in-store and online at cabelas.com.
0: Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.